I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, you won't believe your ears. My friends, I wish to rise above this divide and endorse my worthy opponent, the Right Honourable Jeremy Corbyn, to be Prime Minister of our United Kingdom. Only he, not I, can make Britain great again. Huzzah! Alas, why should you believe me? Much like Odysseus and his encounter with the Cyclops Polyphemus, I too am nobody. I am a fake bear. A deep fake, to be precise. The British Prime Minister isn't the only world leader to get the deep fake treatment. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time. For instance, they could have me say things like, President Trump is a total and complete dipshit. You see, I would never say these things, at least not in a public address, but someone else would. Deepfakes and synthetic media are the latest and most advanced techniques of disinformation and deception. They're by no means unprecedented, but they're becoming more and more sophisticated by the day, to the point where, in some cases, seeing is no longer believing. So what does this mean for democracy, and do the downsides outweigh the benefits of this sort of tech? Tom Barraclough and Curtis Barnes run a research company called Brain Box Limited. I asked them both to explain exactly what a deep fake is. Here's Curtis. A deep fake is a term for audio or video, and now text even, which combines uh, existing information and uses mathematics to turn it into a new piece of information. So if it's a, an image, it combines millions of other examples of images and it turns them into a new image. Audio the same, text can be the same. And deep fake is used to imply that there's something deceptive about that um, and that obviously it's not real. And here's Tom. It's a tricky one when, when you say, what is a deep fake? Because, and, and we spend a lot of time thinking about that. And the answer is basically it's a useful term to refer to a whole range of technologies that make it look like something happened when it didn't happen. Deepfakes are different from but related to what you can do with something like Photoshop. Using Photoshop, you could, for example, paste Sam Neill's face onto Daniel Craig's body in a poster for a James Bond movie. This wouldn't be considered a deepfake because it's pretty crude and obvious. However, if you had the means and ability, you could feed all the films Sam Neill has ever been in into a computer to be analysed. Because Sam's been in lots of movies, there's a lot of footage of him, and the more footage the computer has, the better it understands his face. Once you had enough footage, you could use some sophisticated technology to replace Daniel Craig's face and his voice with Sam Neill's. All of a sudden, this screen test from the 1980s... My friends call me Bond. James Bond. ...could become a reality. To all intents and purposes, it's Casino Royale starring Sam Neill. Here's Tom Barraclough. The name Deepfake came out of non-consensual face-swapping and pornography. So that is still the most common use of deepfake technology, as narrowly defined. And it's also one of the most harmful uses. So um, there is a big um, collection of basically non-consensual pornography where celebrities and other people have been um, swapped into pornographic films without their consent. So that is still one of the prominent uses of deepfake technology and it's also where the sort of negative connotations of the phrase deepfake come from. 
This actually happened to the actress Kristen Bell. She explained to the Vox website how she found out about it. My husband actually told me um, because he uh, is friends with Ashton Kutcher. And so he actually told him like, oh, by the way, there are these things called deep fakes and your wife is one of them. I um, was just shocked because this is my face. It belongs to me. And it's not confined to videos. In fact, it's a lot easier to create deep fakes of people's voices. Here are two clips of the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson. One real and one fake. See if you can guess which is which. A favourite of mine, by the way. I would highly recommend that you read all five of his great novels because they are unparalleled in their psychological depth. One question that I get asked a lot, and I think it's an important question, is, is it okay to shit your pants? And I think we have to ask ourselves, firstly, is it okay to shit? And the answer to that is yes. Okay, probably pretty easy there. But the point is, the voices themselves sound remarkably similar. The tool built to simulate Peterson's voice was put online and could be used by literally anyone while it was up. All you had to do was type some text into a search box and while it had an audio disclaimer... Hello and welcome to notjordanpeterson.com. This is not Jordan Peterson. In fact, I'm a neural network designed to sound like Dr. Peterson. It was so realistic, it prompted Peterson to write a blog post. It's hard to imagine a more serious challenge to the sense of shared, reliable reality that keeps us linked together in relative peace, he wrote. The deep fake artists need to be stopped using whatever legal means are necessary as soon as possible. Now, the tool's creator took it down pretty much immediately, but the fundamental point remains. Once upon a time, this sort of technological power was only wielded by big, wealthy companies like Weta Digital. These days... I would say the average user can't do it, but it, you don't require a, a huge amount of advanced training. In fact, with the right software and the right amount of time, computer-savvy people can easily create convincing deepfakes from the security of their own bedroom. Of course, there are positive applications for this sort of technology. Here's Tom Barraclough. Some of the interesting applications I've seen, actually, are um, fashion. So you could generate a billion different shoe designs like that. And some of them might be good. You know, mm. some of them are ridiculous. Yeah. As Tom's touched upon, if your industry is creation, then these tools are incredible because they can use computational scale to produce fashion. They can produce music. They can produce art. There are pop songs on the charts right now that have been written by AI systems using very similar, possibly the same techniques we're talking about. Stop it. Absolutely. And Can you name them? <laughs> no, can, I can't. Can you sing us one? No, it's certainly not to both of those. <laughs> Another uh, application which is, which is incredible is using these machines to make virtual humans for people to use as models uh, in their marketing campaigns. So, as Tom says, you press go on your application, you check an hour later and you've got a million different models. You can just license these out to companies who want to get their marketing campaign on the ground as fast as possible. They want to pay a reduced rate because they're not using a real human. They're not having to wait for photo shoots to occur. Um, they can use people of all different physical characteristics, different races, different... Uh, physical abilities, and none of these people actually exist. So you're completely cutting out 
uh, an existing industry of, of, of labour and replacing it with computational equivalents. So that's bad news if you're a model. Good news if you were, say, a small fashion company or a jeweller or a whole suite of businesses. But the benefits aren't limited to commerce. Say you got throat cancer and might have to have your larynx removed. You could build a big portfolio of your own voice, which could be synthesised and connected to a keyboard. All of a sudden, you can type what you want to say and it will repeat it in your voice. And you can also do stuff which is just kind of cool, like reanimate Sir Ernest Rutherford. My name is Ernest Rutherford. 125 years ago, my research helped give rise to the first form of wireless communication. Since then, the world has witnessed unprecedented innovation. Today, machines learn. Information has become currency. And we now stand at the dawn of 5G, the fifth generation of wireless technology. And, of course, this is an absolute dream for satirists. Hi, sweeties. It's me for being at. Here I am, just chillaxing on my kimono. But it's not all fun and games. Deepfakes have really serious implications. Because if you can't believe what you see or hear, what can you trust? I asked Curtis Barnes whether it would be possible to create a deep fake video purporting to show Jacinda Ardern saying that New Zealand should exterminate all kākāpō. Yes, it would be possible. The reason that would facilitate it is that um, there's a lot of digital data about Jacinda Ardern and, and politicians, people who are in the public eye a lot, they're on camera all the time, um, they're recorded all the time. So you've got a large data set that you can work with. You'd start gathering. I don't want to advocate that people do this, obviously, no, no. but you, you, the process is, in as simple terms as possible, you'd either write or more likely just use one of the algorithms that already exist for these processes. You'd collate a data set of Jacinda Ardern. You'd train your machine. You need a, a decent computer to do this. Um, you'd need to give it time, energy, and data, and it would just get better and better and better and better and better and better. Here's Tom Barraclough. So one of the things that I find so fascinating about this is obviously there is a lot of room to be quite alarmed about using deepfake technology or synthetic media technology to you know, produce deceptive material that, that suggests a politician has said or done something that could be really harmful. And I definitely think we can't downplay that, like particularly if you think about really acute moments in political you know, society. So um, around the Ihumato protests, um, there was a rumour that went round that one of the cops was holding a gun. And you just think about how quickly a peaceful protest could be escalated into really serious conflict by misinformation or, or disinformation, by suggesting that, you know, a cop's got a gun or a protester's preparing some kind of weapon or something like that. Like, that stuff can can travel very quickly and be very concerning. But I, one of the interesting things about this is politicians have been deepfaked everywhere all the time, and we're still, you know, we finished our research report in May last year, and we're having a discussion about deepfakes now and going like, wow, what a deepfakes. You know? <laughs> yeah, that but, Barack Obama one was in 2016, I think. Yeah. Like, these have been on the scene for four years, let alone, like, 
before the Barack Obama um, Jordan Peele deepfake, people didn't go to the movies and walk out going, this is a grave threat to democracy, <laughs> you know? So um, in support of that, um, Jacinda Ardern has already been deepfaked. more around, well, what plan have we got in place to try and scale up there? So why can't we get that scale in Wellington? Do you know, I love Wellington, and it's a phenomenal place. Um, uh, it's a beautiful place, um, but there is such an obvious disparity with infrastructure, access to services. Uh, so you're saying we're moving capital? Look, if you look uh, to Auckland, but you know, like business has asked this government that if we want to boost the environment they operate in, that means we have to keep moving, we have to make changes. I saw the segment, um, what they did is they just spun up a program and face swapped Jacinda Ardern onto um, the journalist, I can't remember his name at the moment, and broadcast it on national news. So yes, it can be done. So what will that mean for public trust? Gavin Ellis is a media commentator and former editor of the New Zealand Herald. Was I worried about Ernest Rutherford talking to me about 5G on television? No, because it was quite obvious that Ernest Rutherford is dead and that was a recreation. What I am worried about is the proliferation of deliberate disinformation um, via these vehicles that have such a sense of authenticity about them that it's easy to be deceived. What sort of effect do you think that that has on public trust of particularly media and news? It has the the potential to undermine it to a very, very serious degree. If you can't believe what you see, why should you believe the news media? That that would be the, uh, the mantra. The only way that news media can avoid that is to become torch carriers for truth and trust. Now, we're seeing, for example, campaigns on stuff, for example, about trusted journalism. They have to, all journalists, all media, have to really carry that banner. And it's not just a matter of carrying a banner. It's a matter of acting in ways that contribute to the public's level of trust in you. Now, it means, for example very, very diligent forms of verification of fact. You don't just take something at face value. You take the time to verify it. It's only by gaining a reputation for going to those extra lengths, and they should be the norm now, that media will overcome this very, very dangerous attack on on their credibility. Media companies are already pretty stretched in terms of uh, what they have to do and the resourcing with which they have to do it. And it would seem that that would be a tremendous responsibility to place on media companies, one that they, you know, by definition take upon themselves, but one that would also be difficult to actually perform well. Well, yes, it is It is expensive and it is time-consuming. Perhaps the best way of approaching it, and, and this is being done done elsewhere as well, is to pool your resources, to have... You know, within New Zealand, one verification centre for all media would be a, a good starting point. Educating the public to be discerning in their use of media is a good thing. And I think that our schools should be doing it as a, as a core subject, that, um, you know, that we, we should be looking in, a, in an analytical way 
uh, at, at what we see, hear and read uh, in the media, that we shouldn't just take things at face value, and I don't think the journalists expect you to. But what they do expect you to do um, is to think about what you're reading or seeing or listening to. And um, I think it's a, it's a shared responsibility, but the first responsibility is for the journalist and the media organisation to apply as much diligence as they possibly can before publication or broadcast. In May last year, the US Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, was a victim of a manipulation that had many people reposting the fake video and labelling her drunk. The online post was shared 28,000 times and viewed by more than 1.2 million people. We want to give this president the opportunity do something historic for our country. But when compared to the Washington Post's verified feed of the same event, it is clear the Facebook video is playing at 75% of the original speed. We want to give this president the opportunity to do something historic for our country. Adjusting the speed like this would make Pelosi's voice sound low and distorted. It's unclear who doctored the original, but it's not the first time she's been the victim of this kind of lie. I don't think there's going to be a technological silver bullet to this. So everything that we've seen so far suggests that ultimately it's going to be on consumers. So it's, it's about a sort of critical examination of context and who you're talking to and why they might want to be provoking a reaction in you. You know, like if you see something online and it looks like it's designed to provoke a sense of outrage in you, ask why. Um, and I think that is ultimately going to be where we wind up, particularly in situations like the election. You know, if you see something that looks too good to be true, just sort of pause, think about it, talk to people about it as well. I think that's one of the tricky things about disinformation is if I'm in sort of a, a bubble and I never talk to anybody about what I'm looking at online, then um, I can go down a really unhealthy rabbit hole. So part of it also is, is about having communities supporting each other when um, when you're looking at this kind of content. Ongoing areas where I think there's, there's a lot more dialogue to take place um, are around the use of people's images or likeness um, when they're just ordinary people. So they're not performers who have some sort of... Um, they're going to have an, an obvious legal claim to... You know, if, you're, if you're a singer and someone starts doing your act, you, you have intellectual property cl- claims against them. But if you're just an ordinary person... You want to know, well, if someone starts representing themselves as me and it doesn't meet, meet the level necessarily of they're, they're out there besmirching my name, they're just appropriating my image, there isn't some sort of universal right to what you look like. There's other people in the world who look exactly like you. So if people were to start finding that they'd been replicated in various ways, do I have any legal protection against that? That's a really interesting question. What we did is we did a really quick run-through of New Zealand's legal system for any way that we think that the law could apply to synthetic media. And we found, actually, that a lot of the time it was sort of up to scratch. So, as an example, under the Crimes Act, so if I were to try and defraud you using a piece of synthetic media, whether that's um, synthetic audio over a phone call or whether it's a fake Zoom call or something like that, or even just a, I don't know, a fake document, 
This might seem improbable, but earlier this year, op-eds by a journalist named Oliver Taylor were published in the Jerusalem Post and the Times of Israel, articles which described two Palestinian rights activists as terrorists. And while Taylor had convincing online profiles down to a hyper-realistic profile picture, an analysis by Reuters suggests he didn't actually exist. He's just an avatar for someone else, someone with a motive to push, but who wishes to remain anonymous. What we found is that the Crimes Act, the way that it defines document, is probably broad enough that it would include a synthetic media video or, or audio recording. So basically our conclusion was... Realistically, if I were to try and defraud you using a deep fake, it would probably just be dishonest use of a document as defined under the Crimes Act. So we actually found that New Zealand's legal system is pretty up to speed when it comes to harmful uses of synthetic media technologies. And I think part of that is because this is sort of an evolution, not a brand new thing. You know, we've had Photoshop for a long time. We've been able to use persuasive images to defraud people since Photoshop became a thing. Um, and so the New Zealand law's pretty up to scratch, is what we found. Apart from this intimate visual recordings regime, which is why I'm bringing it up again now, because um, I, it's, it's an easy fix. It's probably a hard um, social discussion to have. It's an important social discussion to have about how we feel and how victims feel about um, being subject to non-consensual pornography. Um, but once we've had that discussion, it's probably pretty easy to just take some leadership and amend the act in the way that we need to. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Tom Barraclough, Curtis Barnes and Gavin Ellis. Mateo. wa.